Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 75. It's our diamond episode, right? Isn't 75 diamond? Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, so, Argo, I guess you were right about another beta from last week. You two had a little... We got two going. since last time we talked, yeah. That's crazy. It almost feels like they're going to some kind of continuous deployment. Yeah. yeah. Seems like normally this time of year we're getting... It's the gap between betas is a lot longer. And this year instead it seems to be a lot tighter. And some of that could be a, the security vulnerability that was found recently. You know, one of yeah, those betas may have been for that. Related to that. They're definitely making up for any kind of lost time on betas. Yeah, and two on Friday. That's that's kind of weird. Yeah, I I know when we release software, we avoid Friday like the plague. That's never a good time. Yeah, yeah, never release on Friday. Tuesday's a good day. Yeah, which is what they go home for the weekend and get yeah. to go. <laughs> not worry about. It. I guess it's a beta, so. Eh. Yeah, you're not supposed to be using it on any kind of. Mission critical phone anyway, right? Yeah, but there, I I don't know how many of those were also public betas. I assume all of them, but there's definitely probably a larger audience that may require yeah, higher levels of support. Yeah. So are we done now? You think we're done? You want to put place place another bet? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we don't have any official announcement, at least at the time of this recording, uh, for the media event. So. There's still time for them to get at least one more in there if they really want to. Yeah, well, here in the U.S., it's going to be a three-day weekend coming up. So maybe they'll put it out right there on the Friday and go home for three days. <laughs> That'd be the great great time to release <laughs> iOS 10 GM. <laughs> oh. well, the rumor was that the, the original rumor that I heard was the day after Labor Day was going to be the media event, and then pre-orders would start that Friday. But they would have had to have sent out invitations already, and that hasn't happened. Um, I, you're probably right. Yeah, there there may still be enough time. I don't think they give a huge amount of uh, early warning for the media event lately, but but yeah, it's definitely getting a little tight to to make that happen. Yeah, which is fine because that just mean means that our current phones are still current for that much longer. Yeah. That's making yeah. the Barbara Streisand iOS 10 release date look more and more like that's what it'll be. <laughs> I think, wasn't there, um, I think AT&T had some like staffing announcement that they needed increased number of staff available on like the 23rd and the 30th to reset the store. Mm-hmm. So that suggests that uh, maybe that, that actual release date's going to be a little farther out. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I. It remains to be seen whether I even want this phone. Yeah. I actually had to buy a new phone last week. My son dropped his phone and shattered the glass, so... Uh, oh, man. You're like two new phones in like I, the last month, aren't you? Yeah. For your yeah, family? Uh, so, yeah, it hasn't been, uh, <laughs> hasn't been good timing on that. Which model? You're positioning yourself for the, the 10th anniversary phone well. <laughs> yeah. So he had a 5, just an iPhone 5. Wow. But no touch ID or anything like that. So we bought a five, or I guess it's just iPhone SE 
Now, I've, my hope was that if a new phone is announced and pricing changes or models change, that it would be within the uh, two-week return policy, but it's going to be tight at this <laughs> no. point. Yeah, I don't think so. Especially for them to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think as long as it's announced, I think I can probably um, negotiate something at the store. They said there's a bit of a, a bit of a grace period, but we'll see. Well, that, that SE is not a bad little phone. No, no. I mean, it's not too far off from what's in the 6 or 6S. Uh, it's just a smaller form factor. The only, the main thing it doesn't have is 3D touch, uh, but it's got Touch ID, Apple Pay. Uh, it's got the newer processor. Yeah. So but it, it's pretty close. It is the slower Touch ID. It's the first gen. Okay. One. Which, you know, for him, it's, it's, it's a pretty good upgrade. Mm-hmm. And it's probably still a, a good size. You know, the the four inch screen is still, you know, for a lot of people, the ideal size. People like uh, Donald Trump with small <laughs> hands. Well, you know, if you know kids, I mean, he's he's getting big. He's going to be bigger than me before long. But you know, fitting a a success in your pocket when you're a kid is is a bit much. You have a hard time making it through the metal detectors at school with that in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I think all the kids have some sort of device these days. So, so some of us actually require them to have some sort of device uh, for activities. He's making that up. <laughs> no, it's, it's not our school. It's some other school. Anyway, okay. so so I'm I don't know if they're gonna have a new four inch screen uh, device or if it'll be the same one. But I I think the uh, the iPhone SE has done reasonably well. I think it did more or did better than their expectations actually. But yeah, then again, I mean, they they probably cannibalized their their higher end phone market with it too, since it yeah. was so good of a low end phone. I think they attracted a whole new audience with the six plus and six s plus. You know, people who wanted the big phone that they could only get as an Android phone. So they got some new users, but they probably still had a bunch of people who liked the smaller form factor. And. Uh, you know, they were just waiting for something to come out to upgrade to. They didn't want to buy a phone that wouldn't fit in their pocket. And they didn't yeah. want to have to wear cargo pants. Cargo pants aren't cool anymore, apparently. <laughs> Who knew? Your acid-washed cargo pants, you have to put those away? <laughs> I don't know if they have. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Anyways, so... We'll, we'll get off the fashion topics. <laughs> Enough and of 80s we'll get back fashion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how was 360i to Sam? Well, it was, it was really good this year. I... I think I had as much fun as I did last year. Is this your second or third year attending? This is, this is my second year. So last year kind of went out as a dub dub consolation prize since I didn't get to go to that and had a good time and uh, stayed afterward and did a little hiking last year. Didn't do that this year, but had a had a pretty good time. Uh, still went out with some friends. So that, that was fun and even got to meet a few new people. And then uh, some of the sessions actually were inspiring to me this time. It can be a little difficult for me. I guess maybe I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon sometimes, but well, it's sad and and it's hard when you've been to a decent number of conferences and been working in the industry for a while. It's very rarely that you hear something new or something that gets you excited. Yeah, and a lot of times I'm looking for more of a technical discussion, and I read the titles and I go to the session and I go, that really didn't have anything to do with the title, did it? So. uh that didn't happen too much this time around, which is nice. Uh, there was one that I 
thought was going to be more about architecture. It was just more about what the guy did with his app, which was a important app. It's a not a small user base app, but and it was valuable from that perspective. But I was really kind of hoping to see more about the design patterns and things and what he had considered to do, considered doing and didn't do and went down this other route or whatever. And it was more like, this is my networking library. I don't use AF networking because I want to roll it myself. And I did, I did notice that there was a, a fair amount of not invented here going on there when I would talk to people, uh, which was surprising to me, especially for some of these people that are in these dev shops that, you know, they need their clients maybe can't afford for them to go roll a new networking library just for that project. But, <clears throat> but yeah, so some of the ones I did like, uh, there was a uh, one on computer vision that actually it didn't look as hard as I thought it was going to be. And the way you would train it to train your models, as long as you're working on a small, small subset of things, it's not too bad. Uh, this guy actually, he actually uh, used an iPhone and some software to look at a Counter-Strike heads-up map <laughs> so that he could uh, alert people to when enemies weren't here. That was pretty neat. Was that using the, uh, I think there's an open source C library for computer vision that everybody uses. Is Yeah, OpenCV. Yeah. And it's actually C++. Okay. So that that does kind of negate the use of Swift with that. Swift doesn't interface with C++. And then it gets kind of weird, too, with having to use Objective-C++, and you're actually freeing and malloc memory. But there, are, there are a few other ones he, he touched on that when he was doing the project, weren't as mature for mobile. So they're, they've gotten better. Like he talked about Google's TensorFlow was one. So I want to I check into that one a little bit. You can see it being pretty useful in a lot of different applications and being one of those things that would differentiate your your app from other apps. Hmm. What is TensorFlow? Like machine learning something or other? Yeah, it's a, I guess it's more of a machine learning library than a uh, computer vision library, but they all have to learn. So the machine learning is definitely tied into the computer vision part. Yeah, I, I think it's the... Uh... Yeah, those are really cool concepts. So we did a little bit of that at Big Nerd Ranch uh, for the advanced iOS class that we attended a few years ago. Uh, but you know, all those libraries are C or C++. So you know, I think that tends to scare a lot of people away. Well, rightfully so. C++. It's gross. Yeah. Oh, and memory management is a it's a different model. So you've got to think about that. And uh, sometimes. I don't know about OpenCV, but some of those libraries don't necessarily have the most well-crafted documentation to help out. Yeah. I imagine OpenCV is one of those ones where you could find a lot of blog posts on. Yeah. yeah. It's been around for a long time, and I think it's pretty much the de facto. Uh, there might be some commercial offerings out there, but uh, it seems like most of the examples I've seen have been with OpenCV. Mm -hmm. And doesn't... Go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying to think, do we actually explain what uh, computer vision is? Do you want to get the high-level explanation of that? Well, it's not when you actually look at a computer. It's kind of the opposite, when the computer is looking at you, but not in a spying way. It's more more about like recognition of objects and faces and, and things. So 
I wouldn't limit the spying. I'm sure the <laughs> NSA has lots of computer vision stuff going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but a good kind of commercial example is like a, using the camera to identify an item based on the image, like maybe a product on a shelf and do a price lookup. You know, not, not a barcode scan, but the actual product packaging. Yeah, if you ever want to be really impressed with the computer vision thing, go you into the Amazon app and hit their search bar. And then they have a little camera button. And tap that camera and then point it at something. You will be amazed. Yeah, it's it and the, it tends to be really fast. And part of what differentiates it from just like pure image matching is you might just have a partial or obscured. Um, perspective of the image but it identifies a bunch of points of interest on the image and does an approximation of yeah this this looks like a good match uh, so definitely an interesting concept and there's you know probably probably a lot of use cases beyond just product <laughs> product lookup oh yeah yeah well this guy kind of proved that point because he was recognizing little uh diamonds on a little map and then uh, he was interfacing it with a another company's uh, little like headband that would depending on where something was in relationship to you would vibrate around your head in some specific spot as like basically like a second sense or a sixth sense for people using their their little headband and uh, this guy tied it into counter-strike to pretty good effect too sounds cool yeah there was anything a, go ahead yeah, there was another one that, while maybe not totally interesting, but because it wasn't super technical, but it was um, gamifying the news. I think was the title, and so you guys might be aware that Jeff Bezos of Amazon he bought the Washington Post about a couple years ago, hmm. and uh, he's been wanting to he's been modernizing the Washington Post over time and taking it from more of a daily local newspaper to a national newspaper but one of the things he did with them is he had them build a game about the elections and his major edict about this game was it has to be a flappy bird clone <laughs> so imagine these guys that have never really programmed games before being told you guys are going to make a game about the news oh and by the way it's flappy bird so it was actually um, a floppy candidate i think it was and it was I think he's had a few very odd edicts experiments i guess with uh with the washington post and making news interesting is definitely a difficult thing mostly it's like clickbait and mm -hmm. you know forced controversy to to uh, drive clicks and not really focusing on actual news content that's a whole nother topic though. yeah all <laughs> yeah. those clickbait headlines. wrong podcast for that yeah <laughs> And it's a, it's definitely like you know on our platform, you know figuring out how to turn news into something actually digestible and consumable. I think a lot of people are relying on things like Facebook now to to get a lot of their news, which that's not a help. That just reinforces ignorance. Oh, and you've got a lot of like non-journalist organizations buying newspapers and kind of redefining them, trying to bring them into the digital age, which, you know, there might have been some some good ideas, but there's been a lot of bad ideas, too. Apple's news app, I don't know if that's helping or hurting. I haven't really used it. 
I actually use like I'll use it on the today view and see what some of the articles that are trending, but it's kind of it. I don't think their algorithm for determining what I'm interested in is is working quite right. <laughs> Still giving you weird headlines about. Uh, I'll things. like pick certain channels that mark them as things I'm interested in, but that's rarely what shows up on the the feed. There's a rumor that Apple's working on a new social network app. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, those always go so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't have a good track record. Uh, Although the like... big difference, I think, is this one is not a tied to iTunes or music at all. So Yeah, sounds a little bit like um, you know, a cross between Allo and Duo, Duo from that Google is eventually going to release. I think they might have a bit early access finally for those, but... A little bit in that Snapchat uh, realm where you can secure the the content and it'll be self-deleting in theory. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be video-based as well. I don't know. It's just a rumor, but you're right. They haven't had huge success in the social network space. Although Messages is like the biggest social network app or one of the biggest ones out there. So yeah, they've had success there at least. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the focus of the next version, you know, if they do come out with one, is more about more like Snapchat and securing, making the messages more private. Yeah. So um, one other session I want to point out for people to see when the videos were released. There was one by, and I always mess up, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's Benjamin Anks, E-N-C-Z, but he's always got some pretty good topics. I was curious what he talked about this year, because last year he demoed an early version of ReSwift, or what eventually became ReSwift. Yeah, so he did talk a little bit about his micro-library or micro-framework for doing validations, and uh, but because it tied into the, his talk, which was leveraging Swift's type system, and some of it was pretty good, is you know, going beyond a little bit, where you have uh, like type aliases. So maybe you take a string, type alias it to username, and then in your function definition, you return a username. Well, that's just kind of the, the first little step. You can go a little bit further. And uh, he talked about doing that. Some of it might be a bit of an overkill. <clears throat> not really, not really sure if I would do it in my day to day work, but I think it uh, depends what it is. I, the uh, folks at objc.io, uh, they've got a greencast series that's pretty good, and, and probably about half or more than half of their videos are, are free for everyone, and then the other half are just subscriber only, but they do a lot of that. It, it's it's kind of neat watching them code live, and I'm, I'm sure they practice ahead of time, but just them talking through their thought process, and that's, that's one technique they use a lot is type aliasing uh, to be more clear about what should be passed in or returned, you know, instead mm -hmm. of just like a double or a string, you know, they'll be more explicit about what that double or string really is. Yeah. Like a currency or an address. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those are the guys, anytime I kind of get stuck and feel like I'm just writing Objective-C code in Swift, watching some of their videos kind of helps inspire me and, and think it through in a, in a more yeah. functional way. Oh, they help you complicate your work. 
Actually, most of their solutions, like, it's actually almost annoying because a lot of their solutions are just seem a little bit too easy. And, uh, you know, most of their solutions are not terribly complicated. They, they're pretty straightforward once they get there. May not always be practical for real world problems. You know, that's something you'd have to try and find out. But making it like a generic view controller that, uh, handles a stack view or something like that. And you just pass in a bunch of controls. It ends up being very tight, reusable set of code, but um, yeah, I I kind of wondered why Apple never came out with a stack view controller. They they had the table view controller, they had the collection view controller, but never a stack view one. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of cases where you you actually want something more like a stack than a table view. I mean, you could do a static table view. Um, I don't know. If you can do that in code or not, maybe that's just, I'm, I, in essence, you can do that in code. You just have to write the bullet play code. Yeah, it takes a uh, lot. But you only have to do that one. So that's some of the examples that they have, basically writing those, those generic view controllers that just take a collection of things and they're fairly generic and you can pass in, they, they can be fairly reusable. So. So when you, you know, the do that... functional thing should not the functional concept shouldn't scare people away. It's the code tends to be fairly concise and and easy to read. Go ahead. Yeah. So when you do that, you create your own custom view controller like that. Does that kind of uh, write off the using interface builder? Not necessarily, but you know, part of the downside of the view controller is something else is responsible for instantiating it. If you use a storyboard or a nib to some degree. So you really want to kind of inject those things in the init. And the only way to do that is to kind of have your own init method and call it yourself and not True. have the storyboard initialize it. That's definitely cleaner because you don't have to make things optional as much. And you know that it's getting initialized the way you want it. But, uh, but to some degree, you could still do that in a storyboard. You could still set it up. You just have to deal with the fact that you can't necessarily inject everything in the init. Right. Which that would be a drawback, but kind of like having the whole uh, segues and, and just following Apple's path for that kind of thing. Yeah. But it would be nice to be able to pass in some kind of optional d data when you're segueing to another view controller. Yeah. And you know, it, the ideal state is that by the time it's instantiated and you passed it off, you you can count on it having been set up completely incorrectly. And when you can't do that all uh, as injection into the the init method, you you end up being forced to check to make sure everything was was set. Or you have defaults. That's a, another way around it. But yeah, and yeah. probably a good topic for another episode to talk about the the programmatic versus storyboard approach and it tends to be a little bit of a religious war but it's uh there's pros and cons to both sides and you know when you start talking about architecture a lot of the architectural patterns tend to to favor the programmatic approach but there's so many things that storyboard gives you that you don't have to code yourself but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, we're actually going to have a talk on that uh at the next Cocoa Heads meetup so when this episode comes out, it'll be the, the day that we have that meetup. So it might be a good follow-up to talk about that afterwards. Yeah. And then 
there'll be a recording of that online, right? Most likely, yeah. Yeah. As long as Some point. <laughs> everything works properly, yeah. Our last recording, the audio didn't work out, so we weren't able to post it. Hopefully this one will go smoothly. Oh, I was looking forward to that one, actually. I have it, and it's just really hard to hear what's being said, even when you crank up the volume. Yeah, that's a bummer. Maybe you can yeah. get him to do a voiceover. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> he works for you, right? Yep. So speaking of bummers, looks like uh, a lot of people have been talking about this last week. The Vesper app shut down. Yeah, and this is another one of those uh, indie apocalypse kind of story. <laughs> and uh, we probably don't need to dwell on the details of that side of the, the story because I think there's been plenty of podcasts and articles to do that. There were a couple of things that came out of that that post from, from Gruber uh, that came up in our Slack chat that probably worth discussing in a little bit more detail. Um, probably first of which would be the assertion that Mac, Mac apps are easier for indies to make a living. And Argyne, I know your company has a little bit of experience with that, probably different than what maybe some others have had. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's true for me, but, uh, I think games are different from productivity apps. If you're making a productivity app, it may be easier to make a living. Um, but that was definitely a, a theme that I heard uh, reiterated several times at release notes last year was that you can, it's easier to make a living as an indie with a Mac app. And I think a lot of that is because probably two reasons. One is there's not that pressure to give it away for free or next to nothing, you can actually charge a reasonable amount for the app. And two, you can sell outside of the app store, especially now that you have access to a lot of things uh, that previously were only available if you sold through the app store, like iCloud support. So you can, you're not giving away 30% to Apple and you can do things like upgrade pricing and, and such. Trials. Yeah. Now, you do have to take care of a lot of things that Apple takes care of for you, like license keys, updates, um, just kind of that more of the infrastructure side of it. Uh, but there's some services like DevMate, for example, has a, provides most of that functionality and, and has a, looks like a pretty robust solution for Mac apps. And I think last year or earlier this year, they, they made it free unless you want analytics, I think. I think that's where you have to start paying. What is it? So, there's, there's another one that helps you with the payment process, isn't it? Handspring? Uh, Fastspring. Fast. what you're thinking about. Yeah. So Fastspring some, is pretty yeah, popular for digital content selling. And I, and DevMate might use Fastspring, or they might have their own. But it's uh, It makes things a little bit more complicated having to deal with those issues yourself, but it's not as bad as as it used to be. Well, and I I think part of the reason, at least just for Vesper, that the Mac app coming first would have helped was just a kind of a timing thing that they happened to run up against where they built for all this stuff that was issued with iOS 6, and then boom, iOS 7 came out and fixed all of it, so if they would have built it in a different order, things would have worked out differently, it would have yeah. been easier and all that stuff, so... Well, their, their time to market would have been better. They wouldn't have been delayed for however long 
porting to iOS 7. Yeah, and uh, they worked around the issues with TextView that was fixed later in a few releases, and then iCloud Sync wasn't really an option for them. You know, from their perspective, it just wasn't quite workable, and it still wasn't a year later. But now, if they were to build it today, they could probably get away with using iCloud. Or CloudKit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, specifically Cloud CloudKit. Because they were using, at the time, the sync solution would have been iCloud with core data, which everybody always said, don't go near that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think, I mean, for iOS developers out there, I do think it's at least worth exploring the Mac app approach, you know, if you want to build a premium app. And, and Argo, you're right, it's not right for every category, like the gaming category is a little bit more challenging on, especially on the Mac App Store. But, you know, those pro app definitely is an area where you can char- still charge a decent price, a livable price for the product if it's something people want. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit more complicated to just what the right business model is if you're making an app. Uh, one of the things that came up in the Slack was kind of what is the value of code. I think someone pointed out that Greg Pierce, who makes drafts, did uh there's this old open source tool that does like a line count and then uses some model to figure out how long it would take to build the app and he got okay my app takes you know so many lines of code and it's costs four million dollars to to build or something like that so he's like i'll take four million dollars from anybody who wants to buy drafts yeah Uh, and you know that's basing on an estimated effort for the lines of code if you were to hire a professional consulting firm that built it for you yeah and i mean it's it's also using a really old model and some really old numbers and all that stuff but um i mean you don't i guess in my mind you don't value uh your your code in 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 terms of how much it costs to uh make um that's how you can pay for it if you are paying someone else to do it which i'm sure you have lots of uh experience working through that with with people who want to who wants you to build stuff for him, Alex? But uh, you kind of have to do the businessing stuff that we don't like to do. Yeah. You want to figure out like the value of something you have. Like for for our apps, the code probably isn't that valuable at this point, but it's our because of our business model. It's the fact that we have these existing apps that have lots of users and stuff like that. I mean, other if someone else wanted to go do it, they could clone our app probably fairly very fairly simply but you wouldn't have all the users so it goes back to comments we made previously is you got to build a business to be successful in the app store today um but even that's no guarantee because wasn't vesper a business it was and and i i think this comes back to the the (laughs) wasn't a business the other businesses fail Yeah. yeah yeah but it comes back to the other thing i thought was interesting about the post is is thinking about what it means to be successful to you. You know, that's kind of relative. So, um, you know, they didn't post numbers. We don't know how much money they made. Uh, we just know that, you know, this was still pretty much a off the side of the desk type of project to some degree for, for probably all of them, if not most of them. Um, certainly, certainly at least one or two of them still had a day job. And other sources of revenue, and and Brent eventually, you know, went to full time at Omni Group, and you know that's 
it's easy when you're you're at Omni Group to say that there's money to be made uh, building desktop apps, but Omni Group's been at it for a long time, and they they sell very pro level desktop app, and they still have the same same kind of model they've they've always had of the the paid perpetual licenses with upgrade pricing if you don't buy it through the app store. But yeah, so long story short, I, I think it's uh, what's successful to you. You know, whether you're is it breaking even? Is it um, is it making enough to to live from? And and how much is that for you versus somebody else? Yeah, it sounded like their subscription revenue from the syncing portion of the app wasn't enough to cover the costs for the infrastructure of the syncing. So there there was no way for them to even keep the lights on as a hobby without yeah. shelling out significant money of their own. Yeah, I don't think the articles indicated whether or not they were losing money, but they it wasn't if they were making money, it wasn't enough to justify continuing with it for them. Yeah. And because you know, I, go ahead. I mean it, it is an opportunity cost for cost for them. Yeah. Because if they're not working on on if they're working on Vesper, which isn't going to give them a whole lot of return for their money, they could be working on something else that actually would be the next big product. So they and, have to keep that in mind. Yeah. And, you know, if they, if it's not successful enough for them to justify making updates and they're having to do the care and feeding on their sync solution and bandwidth and hosting related to that, then yeah, I can, you know, at some point you're going to pull the plug and say it's not worth it. But, you know, for somebody else, you know, maybe, maybe they were making more than just breaking even or, losing money and maybe it was enough for somebody else but you know during fireball i think charges like eight thousand dollars per sponsor for the newsletter so you know when you're selling sponsor uh, positions at eight thousand dollars a pop and you've got an app that's selling for under five dollars per person theoretically you can sell a lot more of the five dollar app but you got to sell a whole, whole lot of apps to, to match just one sponsor or one newsletter. So, yeah, so I could see where if you were going to spend more time on something, you would spend it on where you've got a bigger margin. They would have to sell 2,286 apps to cover one sponsorship, for the record. Yeah, and most likely they Which doesn't do work that. with the normal curve of, of paid up front app. It's kind of like that downward slope towards nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, until you uh, do a big update or something. Yeah, and you know that that one-time upfront perpetual licensing cost—it's hard to have a sustainable revenue model without spending money on marketing on a regular basis. Now, theoretically, during Fireball, could have done a decent amount of self-promotion, and maybe they did. But yeah, it's yeah. you know a lot of times when we get these in the apocalypse stories, it's. You kind of have to qualify it to some degree with, for their time, it wasn't worth it, but somebody else it had been exactly what they wanted or, or better than what they were expecting. You know, if it's supplemental income, that's one thing. If it's something you're trying to make a living from, it's another. And if your time is better spent doing something else, then then maybe that's what you do. Yeah. But Well, didn't, didn't one of those guys make Glassboard as well? Yeah, yeah I, Brent I, Simmons worked on Glassboard. Yeah. He was yeah. one of the people. And then Justin Williams acquired it at, at one point. I think there was some overlap. 
between when they were starting Vesper and when he sold it. Then Justin Williams made a go at it, and then I think he eventually just shut it down uh, because yeah. it was. Uh, he tried to change the model a couple of times and didn't have success. Kind of turning turning that. Anytime you change pricing models, you run the risk of getting some friction from your customer base. And can't remember if Glassboard was free. I I think it was free for most people. Yeah, it started out free. And you could get a private board or something like that. Nobody wanted private boards. Yeah. Glassboard was pretty popular in the conference community, especially in in our ecosystem. We're having people communicate and Slack has kind of replaced that since since Glassboard was shut down. Yeah. And... And quite possibly Slack would have uh, replaced it either way. It's true. But yeah, yeah. I just, you know, you got to think about, you know, are you do- the reasons that you're going to become what you're trying to become an indie developer? And I think a, li- a lot of indie developers do it more as a lifestyle job than as a, I'm going to be a millionaire with this app. It's, I want to be my own boss and I want to set my own schedule and deter- I want to pick what I work on. That is all very appealing. Yeah, which you're, <laughs> You know, in a lot of cases, you're going to make some trade-off. You know, you're going to have to maybe live a little more frugal than, than you did before in order to make that happen, at least early on. And, and I think a lot of app developers, a lot of the very successful apps were not the first attempt by that individual or company. You know, that took them a few attempts before they found something that, that worked. Yeah, but then also, don't you start to become a bit of a slave to your product? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that happens too, for sure. <laughs> well, and and that's a common Thanks theme I hear you. from indie developers is you know, often there's no separation between personal life and work life because you're often working at home and support is 24-7 and you're it. So when you go on vacation, you know, there's a good chance you're at least thinking about your work, if not doing support, if you're a one-man shop. Well, not only that, but that's... If that's your big bread and butter product and you want to work on another product, it's kind of hard to justify. Yeah. And, you know, if it's, if it's a fairly involved pro level app, you're, you probably got more than enough work to do to keep it going. You know, feature, you'll never get done with your feature list and the requests that are coming in. The utility apps that like kind of David Smith would create, you know, a lot of those apps probably don't require a whole lot of uh, ongoing updates. You know, it's not a 40 hours a week every week for the rest of your life to keep that app up to date. Right. So he, he makes a lot of apps that are probably fairly low maintenance, but collectively it keeps them very busy. Well, he does get have to get busy every so often. You know, whenever Apple puts out a new release of iOS and changes things up, like, Bigger phone form factors and size classes oh, yeah. and new look and feel. Yeah, and, yeah, and I'm, I, I kind of have to live with that as well with consulting. And Sam, you probably do to some degree, um, but I've got a lot of clients that you know, thankfully they they like the work that we do and they keep coming back. But that also means we've got more and more apps every year that we got to make sure that they still work and operate. As expected, when new versions come out. September crunch time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, everybody. Yeah, everyone in the whole iOS community deals with that in one way or the other. Yeah, just kind of a price of doing business, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's easier when you only have to think about one app. If you have to think about 
half a dozen or a dozen, then, you know, it gets to be a very busy time yeah. of year. Well, when your one app is the size of a dozen apps, too, that can be pretty yeah. bad. Yeah. Well, that was a interesting discussion, but I think that's about all the time we have left this week. So why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the Internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson. And I am at Sam Corder on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. Uh, the podcast Shared Inst. Uh, come join us on our chat at slack.sharedinstance.com. Leave us a review. Share us in Overcast, all that good stuff. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week. <laughs> all right. Maybe with a new iPhone announcement? Or at least yeah. a beta, right? Something. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you guys. See ya. Later.